if you just looked at a handful of these prices over the last 10 years, you could actually tell a story that linked together uh, the Arab Spring revolutions, the civil war in Syria, Brexit, the rise of Trump, the rise of right-wing populism, the collapse of Venezuela, the US border crisis, the war in Ukraine, uh, the complete destruction of cities such as Mosul, and not just that, but also things like spikes in civil uh, spikes in wars such as in Somalia, even the so-called climate wars in Kenya. And so just by looking at these numbers, I found that I could tell a story, a kind of a new story of, if you like, a kind of a global butterfly effect. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is the author of Price Wars, How Chaotic Markets Are Creating a Chaotic World. Rupert Russell, welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show. Tell everybody a little bit about uh, who you are, how are you, where you are, what has been the journey through life that brings you to be sitting here talking to us? Sure. So my first career was in academia. I from here, but I went to the States uh, for around 10 years. I did a PhD, sociology. And I was frustrated with academia because there's lots of great ideas, lots of interesting things going on, great research, but it, I found it very insular. It was sort of academics talking to other academics. And if you even suggested doing things that were so-called popular, that was like seen as taboo and uh, not something you wanted to even talk about if you were interested in getting tenure track and then tenure, et cetera. And One does thought, not talk to the plebs. Precisely. That was what was communicated to me repeatedly. <laughs> and, well, now uh, you're here and you're doing it. That is what I wanted. So this is the goal achieved. So I wanted to finish though. So I finished my, my PhD and I decided I wanted to take some fascinating ideas I come across. And one of those ideas was from my advisor, Orlando Patterson, who had done some incredible research on the idea of freedom. Um, looked at the origins of freedom in slave societies, looked at how freedom had spread through Western culture over the centuries, but also how Americans viewed freedom. He had commissioned uh, enormous sort of survey research to sort of see what Americans thought. And I thought this was a really fun topic to de delve into. The Iraq war was nearly a decade old at this point, this is around 2013-14. So I thought, why not make a film about freedom? What is freedom? Uh, what does it mean in different parts of the world when people say they're fighting for freedom? What do they even mean? And so the film ended up being a kind of uh, a survey. So I, uh, the practice of freedom. So I wasn't interested in asking people to define freedom. I was interested in people who said they were fighting for freedom. And it's like, okay, what do you do? So in Japan, that was... Uh, people who were fighting for the right to dance. Dancing had been banned in nightclubs in much of Japan. And so there was, in you, when I went to Tokyo, I noticed this because you used to see signs on the side of the wall that said no dancing. And we thought it was some kind of ironic hipster thing. And then they were like, no, 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 you actually can't dance here. And it's a nightclub as a DJ and everyone has to stand still. And so we did a story on the kind of movement to sort of campaign for people to dance. We also did some more weight weightier things like uh, the first wave of the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong 2014. We went to Tunisia to look at the aftermath of the Arab Spring, what happens when you've so-called gained freedom, right, uh, in, in, in that country, which at the time was seen as the kind of success case of the Arab Spring revolutions. We did stuff on Black Lives Matter and so forth. And what we found doing this was that, was that it didn't matter if you're in... East Asia, the Middle East, America, freedom was very much tied up with the fight for rights and the fight for democracy. 
Um, of course, there's like, in the details, things may differ. But on the whole, people want to be able to say what they want to say. They want to be able to vote. They want to be able to be treated like an adult. They don't want to live underneath a corrupt regime. We found these all to be pretty universal uh, things that people wanted. Um, and then, of course, so we were sort of identifying what was driving that was a drive towards a liberalism. And at the time, there was a big discourse around the drive towards a liberal democracy, or other people called it electoral authoritarianism. There's a bunch of different jargon around it. But we didn't identify why this was happening. And this became more urgent as kind of time went on. So uh, Trump wins the United States, Brexit happens in the UK, there's a right-wing populist turn in Europe. So as we were finishing the film, we sort of identified this trend, but and described it in with these wonderful characters and having gone to lots of pro-protest movements and I got tear gassed at Donald Trump's inauguration and but we I think the why was missing and so that brought me onto this project which is looking at uh, the tumult of the last decade the 2010s and what I kind of identified as being a key causal factor in this was prices right prices are international they're global that is why you can tell a global story about global trends because the economy is essentially global. And it's not global in the sense that it's kind of amorphous and diffuse and we're all sort of trading in this kind of big global market. It's global in a very specific sense, in the sense that the price for traded goods such as uh, wheat, oil, natural gas, now even things like coal we're hearing about in the news, these all have one price around the world or one kind of gold price. And this price may differ region to region depending on literally moving it, transportation costs, things like that. But there's one price and this price is kind of set quite literally at the exchanges, the London Metal Exchange. In London, we've been hearing about nickel prices going haywire, but also in Chicago, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Um, and so what I sort of found was that if, if you just looked at a handful of these prices over the last 10 years, you could actually tell a story that linked together uh, the Arab Spring revolutions, the civil war in Syria, Brexit, the rise of Trump, the rise of right-wing populism, the collapse of Venezuela, the US border crisis, the war in Ukraine, uh, the complete destruction of cities such as Mosul, and not just that, but also things like spikes in civil uh, spikes in wars such as in Somalia, even the so-called climate wars in Kenya. And so just by looking at these numbers, I found that I could tell a story, a kind of a new story of, if you like, a kind of a global butterfly effect that had been happening through these prices. They're all visible. We see them every day. But they have been moving in I would say quite volatile and sometimes mysterious ways. And what had ended up happening was it created enormous shocks globally. So when the price of food or oil in particular, the only ones, but those in particular move violently either up or down, creates enormous instability. And the way you can think about it is like a Pandora's box, right? So it's not that the prices are like literally driving tanks or they're literally impoverishing people. It's that they're kind of creating fractures in the society, politically, socially, economically. And from that, it allows a kind of Pandora's box to sort of open. Of course, ISIS is probably the worst, but maybe the most prescient right now is Vladimir Putin. And so the way that I kind of described this was the way that I kind of thought about geopolitics by, by the end of it was that we like to tell kind of monster stories, right? And this will, viewers, this will differ who you may think the monsters are, but for some non-controversial examples, we could pick Putin, ISIS, for example, would be the two big ones, maybe Xi in, in, in China, maybe, you know, Maduro in Venezuela. Um, and 
you know, there's there's a lot of psychologizing that goes on. What's Putin really thinking about? What's ISIS's true ideology? And that's fair enough. There's nothing, wrong, wrong, nothing wrong with that. But I'm definitely not a Kremlinologist. I don't know what's in Putin's head. I don't really think anybody really knows apart from Putin. But we could, I think it's also fair to assume, just for argument's sake, that it's nefarious, right? We can kind of assume that ISIS wants to dominate its neighbours, Putin wants to dominate its neighbours. But these uh, people are just made of flesh and bone, right? So it's not literally Putin driving a tank. He's not literally Godzilla marching down to a, a border and destroying it. It's it's all enabled by not just the economy, but in particular for those two cases in particular, oil and gas, right? And that these people get strengthened when oil and gas prices are high. So the way that I sort of began to see it was that the global economy and the commodity markets in particular kind of create an architecture, a kind of labyrinth around the world. And for the most part, these monsters tend to be contained. So, you know, Putin may have been wanting to invade Ukraine over the last seven years, for example, right? He started the conflict 2014. um, And it's been interesting that there hasn't been much happening, right? When I was there in 2018, you know, it was old news. It was five, six years. There were still trenches being dug out. Everybody was hoping it would end, but nobody kind of knew why. And so it's like, well, why didn't you do it? And the, the argument of the book is it's, it's because the low oil prices in that seven-year period essentially encaged him, right? And you can kind of tell the story about how you have these price changes or price shocks, and they're constantly opening and closing gates around the world. And when they open, we get these monsters. They go and kind of roam around. They create enormous destruction. And then the economic conditions may change, and then they kind of get closed up again. So the the sort of the the argument that I sort of arrived at was that we have this sort of invisible architecture kind of all around us, and that's what's been driving the kind of order and chaos of the last 12, 14 years now. Mm. So you talked about oil prices, and that sort of makes sense when people who who profit from the sale of oil and gas have more money, they're more able to execute plans that they otherwise would have done, but they didn't have the money and and the the sort of confidence in the future to execute. Mm -hmm. Um, What about food prices? Because that's obviously becoming a big conversation, particularly now, only because people in the West are suddenly starting to realize that food (laughs) prices also affect them, right? Yeah, precisely. So we've had two major food price spikes in the last uh, uh, 20 or so years. So one was 2008, Mm. one was 2010. And when you, it sort of looks like kind of double dip like this, right? And this is an, an index created by the UN called the UN uh, Food Price Index. And what you see is as soon as these prices start go, go, going up and got a long story short, essentially doubling in both these pit periods to where they had been previously, um, you essentially see, especially when you get to the peaks, enormous riots breaking out everywhere. So essentially what ends up happening in 2008 have the global, what's called the global food crisis. The UN declares this, food prices essentially double. Um, 155 million people are pushed into extreme poverty. And you see a surge in protests and riots and a few governments get deposed. We then have the financial crisis happens essentially immediately. It was already starting, but it becomes kind of global recession by 2009. This creates another wave of poverty and hunger throughout the world. And then 2010 is almost like, if you like, the third hit. So food prices then surge for... Uh, a second time and it becomes like a third stressor. And this is when you begin to see, you know, not just riots and revolutions in the Middle East, but actually globally amongst a lot of food importers, you begin to see this. And it's not difficult to understand why, right? We don't need to be mechanistic about it either. It's not just that people, 
you know, can't afford food or can't afford to eat and therefore they go out to protest. In many of these countries, um, there's a kind of, they call like a ruling bargain or like a social contract, right? And often, so just take the Tunisia case, you know, there's a kind of uh, an idea that, okay, yes, then the dictator Ben Ali and his family may go off and have nice, you know, trips to Saint-Tropez and they, we kind of know they're stealing some money and they've got the nice yachts and they've got the nice palaces. But in return for this, um, there has to be a guarantee a guarantee that life is livable. And that is usually expressed itself through a combination of bread prices, controls that is, and sort of a wage or a minimum income level, essentially. And it's a combination of these things. And this dates back to the end of the Second World War. So when the colonial powers collapse, the new revolutionary governments come in in, say, India or Egypt, or say, Tunisia, um, and they and they say, all right, as part of kicking out the colonizers, we're gonna we're gonna guarantee your life is livable. And of course, they may be a bit autocratic, but there's this social contract. And so the so we're we're yeah. gonna we're gonna be the dictator in charge. Our family is gonna profit, but yeah. in exchange, you're gonna get stability. Yeah, you're gonna get security if you don't speak out against the regime and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, you're gonna get a stable, predictable income, which ga- and you'll be able to buy food with it. Yeah. And that's yeah. the deal. Yeah, that's okay. right. So it's also the way I put it is it's 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 sustenance. It's about thirty five percent, forty forty percent of most caloric intake in the Middle East is from wheat, bread, and so mm. forth. But it's also symbol, right? So it also is is, is a symbol of this ruling uh, contract, uh, ruling but bargain, and that's why it's so combustible. So when you look at, for example, the photographs of these Arabic protests, people are holding bread, right? So in mm. Syria, mm. you see lions people walking and they're holding a bread. The same as in Yemen. In Tunisia, there's photographs of people holding baguettes, you know, as kind of guns at the police. So <laughs> bread takes on a kind of dual function. But it's also similar here, right? So not all prices are as politically important. Um, in, the, in America in particular, you know, gas prices mm. have enormous outsized political mm. effects. Mm. Um, and of course, housing as well was to be a third one of which house prices were kind of obsessed with. So it's not necessarily the most important prices, are the ones that get picked up. Of course, there's lots of prices that go into our living standard, but politically, some kind of tend to get emphasised. It's very, very interesting talking about this, talking about food prices, because uh, this is something that has affected me directly. You mentioned Venezuela. That's where my mother's from. Okay. So I've seen what happens when food prices spiral, when... You, you get hyperinflation. You talk about hyperinflation in Venezuela uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in your book. Let, let's let's discuss a little bit about that. What effect does hyperinflation have on society, and what effect does it have on ordinary people? God, that is a big question. I will. Um, the the effect it has on society is it create it turns life into a sort of topsy turvy Escher like labyrinth. So I'll tell you. Uh, two stories. So one is what hyperinflation looks like. So if you're standing in, in in Caracas, it looks like, you know, it could be any South American city, I guess. It also, at least in LA, it looks a bit like LA. You've got kind of concrete, mm. brutalist buildings. There's some mountains, there's some palm trees, there's street vendors selling fruit and so forth. And everything kind of looks, um, you know, pretty pleasant. And mm. you don't wouldn't know this place was necessarily in the midst of like one of the most brutal economic catastrophes maybe in history. But then you start looking closer and it's all in the details. So, for example, my translator said, look at that lemonade guy. So he takes me over and there's a guy with a white 
lemonade stand. Um, and he's just got, you know, a bucket of lemonade that he's made, and he's got a little pitcher, and he's going to put it in glasses, glasses people to come and buy on the street because it's hot. And he's then got the prices. And if you and he was doing something. So it turned out, and I looked closer, he was writing, and he's writing a new price, and he sort of cuts out with some scissors, and then he was taking it and putting it on the front, and then the front is papier mache. So he's just sticking prices on top of prices all day. And that's what he'll do throughout the day. So he knows that prices are going to double by the afternoon, right? This is what economists call inflation's expectations. So that's what everyone always freaks out about because once it gets built in, mm. no one has to tell him. He's not like, I don't know, looking at the newspaper to see what inflation is. He just knows they're going to double by the afternoon. So you should get this... So you get this... Uh, the self-reinforcing, basically. Exactly. It becomes self-reinforcing and it becomes, becomes sort of built into the society. One person I spoke to, I'll just give you his, 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 his story, his name was Octavio, and he was a middle-class kind of, uh, non-middle-class guy. He was super into playing video games. Um, and when the crisis really got going, he uh, couldn't afford to eat. Now, what, happens in, what happened in Venezuela when I was there, people would talk about, is that most jobs that you would expect to get minimum wage, right? And the way that they talk about it is it's for the month. So they would say, okay, you're going to get so many bolivars for the month. That was, when I was there, um, a bus fare for one day, right? So a job makes completely no sense because your month's wages you would spend just getting to the job in the morning of one day. So your kind of regular economy is completely useless to you. It's a negative sum to participate in it. Mm. And so what he did is he just basically did nothing. He lay on his bed and he said, I'm just going to get up once a day to drink a glass of water. And he held up these huge T-shirts. I mean, they were literally like parachutes. Like, you know, he was a fat guy. He was a big guy in the, in the kind of before times. Mm-hmm. And he just shrank and you saw him and he just looked like, so do photographs, just a different person. And he was just like completely emaciated. He just lost like kilo after kilo after kilo, starving. And he said he eventually realized that from his previous life playing World of Warcraft, that he could make money playing World of Warcraft. And by money means dollars, really. So there's a thing called farming. People who, who don't know where you can essentially do the boring bits of the game um, for uh, essentially, often it's Americans, but it could be people in Britain as well. You're chopping virtual wood, collecting virtual, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Right. And then you can sell it to people who can't be bothered to do it themselves. They, he took over their avatars to do right. that as far as right. I understood how yeah, it works. Yeah, yeah. And they would pay him a dollar a day. And he said to me, this is amazing. I earn as much as a lawyer or a doctor in Venezuela. But then once he goes, when he gets those dollars and he converts them into bolivars, it becomes a race against time, right? Mm. Because the lemonade guy, they're immediately losing value every single moment he has it. And you're also in a place with extreme shortages. So he would be running from supermarket to supermarket looking for canned goods because he doesn't have the money for, to pay the electricity for a fridge. So he'd want to get rice, tuna fish. And the first supermarket you may go to, may not have tuna fish, you have to go to the next one. And then by the third one, you can't afford it, right? So when I say it, it's this, le- this sort of Escher-like labyrinth, these people live in these worlds that are literally turned upside down. And in his case, it was like, you know, he was in the video game. It's like it becomes a video game that you can't win, you know, in the sense that the, the architecture around you is just completely shifting and it just completely debases your life, you know, to... To, to living a life that almost isn't worth worth living. And that also affects the world as a whole, because I know for a fact that Venezuela has, a, I think, the largest migrant population in the world. 
5.5 million people have left Venezuela. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And obviously, they're all going to go somewhere. And yep. the reality is, is that most of them will go if they can the West. Hey, Francis, do you go on the internet to look at naughty stuff? Yeah. Is it stuff that you'd be embarrassed to show your friends? Yeah. Is it stuff that would get you cancelled? Yeah. Well, next time you decide to be naughty and watch more trigonometry, you need to use ExpressVPN. It doesn't matter, mate, because I use incognito mode. Ha! It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why even when you're at home, you should never go online without using ExpressVPN. My career is finished! There, there, you'll have to leave trigonometry, can't be helped. Anyway, it doesn't matter who your internet service provider is. ISPs in the US can legally sell your information to ad companies. ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your ISP can't see the site you visit. Absolutely finished! ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, you won't even realize you have ExpressVPN on. It runs seamlessly in the background and is so easy to use. All you have to do is tap one button and you're protected. What am I gonna do? ExpressVPN is available on all your devices, phones, computers, even your smart TV. So there's no excuse for you not to be using it. Go on, Francis, do the last bit. If you don't want to end up like me, protect your online activity today with a VPN rated number one by Business Insider. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash trigger, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash trigger, expressvpn.com slash trigger to learn more. I think most Venezuelans have gone to neighboring countries. So I interviewed a woman um, who were just putting her last kid on the bus. I think it was to Ecuador. She had three kids. One was in Spain. Um, one was in Peru and the third one she was sending to Ecuador and she was just like this is my life now right I'm a single mom and now I have to spend Mother's Day alone I can't there's no there's no future for me because I've just got my whole family has been sort of completely completely fragmented and but again that affects you know the neighboring countries which mm -hmm. in turn affects their economies and the, the worrying thing is is it's unsustainable we surely we can't keep having this because then there's going to create problems in in other economies, and it's going to destabilize their their populations as well. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why the way in which I was thinking about this in in the book was it's why chaotic markets create a chaotic world, right? So if you're constantly creating instability in the world, right? Whether so, I also looked at you know collapsing coffee prices, sending hundreds of thousands of Guatemalan migrants. This is 2018 to the U.S. border, right? Whether it's volatile um, food prices in Africa, sending people to to Europe, right? You're right. This like you're right. This is causing a lot of instability. Is it unsustainable? I don't know, right? We don't. We haven't. We haven't reached the limit. We don't know what is sustainable and is and is unsustainable. Is it disturbing? Does it create disorder? Absolutely, right. This is. It's definitely disorder making. 
But I think the... I think the other way that we may want to think about this is, you know, who benefits from this, right? Are there people who profit from there being a border crisis? Are there people who profit from migrant flows? And this, and the other question is, is, is are there people who are causing the chaos that we haven't touched on yet? A lot of the book looks at the nature of these markets. No, I was about to ask you about that, yeah. And, you know, how did they, how are they impacted by this? So what, what I'm trying to do in the book is pull together these things that all seem quite disparate, right? So you've got the US border crisis, Central America, climate change, coffee production, speculation. And what I'm, what I've been trying to do is, is drawing all these lines between like, yes, like when, when we hear headlines about migrants crossing the boat coming to Britain, we don't hear the story necessarily of where they've come. And even if we do, we don't necessarily hear why those wars have started, who's giving them weapons. Yemen would be a nice example of that, right? Maybe Britain stopped selling Saudi Arabia billions of dollars of arms export every single year. Maybe these people on those boats wouldn't be here because their houses wouldn't have been blown up by Saudi bombers, right? So... What I'm trying to do in this book is to tell the story of the last 10 years and draw all of these connections sort of so that we go behind the headlines of the immediate tragedies, which is which obviously we need to do something about, to where it kind of all started, the very source of the chaos itself. So, well, let's do that then, because you're talking about the volatility in food and uh, resort, energy prices, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things that human beings came up with a certain time ago to deal with the fact that farmers producing crops were struggling to get a fair price for their product because it all arrives at once and it has to be sold quickly mm-hmm. was human beings invented this great thing which we now call derivatives, right? A way of managing future risks and managing prices. Uh, and initially it was attached to the actual product. Uh, but then it evolves. You talk to us, explain to people who have no idea about how financial markets work, all of that from the beginning. <laughs> okay. In the, well, in ancient Greece, um, I think modern, <laughs> modern derivative markets, especially in the States, uh, come from Chicago, right? So as you, as you said, mid-19th century Chicago, it's bang in the center of the Midwest. It's where they grow all the wheat, other crops, other agriculture. And the farmers would take that. You have the harvest, you take everything to Chicago. Um, and there's a problem, right? There's massive oversupply in Chicago. And so it becomes worthless. So, you know, economics 101, supply goes up, price goes down. And so it's more profitable just to dump it into Lake Michigan, right? Because at least you might maintain some kind of assemblant price. And so what was sort of one of the innovations that came up with to sort of run these markets effectively was, was, was futures, right? And it can sound a bit confusing, but essentially, it just means you you agree on a, a a price for a future date. So it's like it's like saying, you know, I'm going to come and deliver so many bushels of wheat to Chicago um, in May, and there's a price for what's called a May contract, or a June contract, or a July contract. And so it 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 means that the farmers aren't all coming to Chicago at one in one go, and it means that they can kind of stagger it out. So it gives the farmers security; they know they when they plant those seeds and do whatever you do to grow wheat on this, farm it, I guess. Get your 19th century combine harvester out. You know that you've got a guaranteed a guaranteed price. Now, the problem with that system, um, at least when it very first started, and it's true and true now as well, but the problem is, is that there might not be someone to buy that July contract, right? So people, ordinary consumers, say you're a hotel, a bakery, a restaurant, whoever it may be back then. You may they might not want to be thinking about buying something a year a year in advance. And so that's kind of where speculators came in, right? And so the idea was that it could be another person could come in 
and they could say, okay, I'm going to guarantee that price for you. Here's a contract, here's, here's a piece of paper, right? This is what derivatives are. So it's a paper derived from the, has its value derived from the bushel of wheat. And I'm going to do that. And then when it then comes around to July, that hotel owner may say, oh, actually, I do need some wheat now, right? And then you can then sell that onto the onto the hotel client. So they're to provide what economists call liquidity. It just means literally the, the grease in the wheels to get the whole kind of machine working and to kind of make sure the farmers always have something to sell to. And at the same time, the bakers always have a steady supply of, of wheat that they can kind of buy for. And in that system, it should be said that the speculator in the middle is playing an important role because yeah, they're yeah. taking on a risk. That's right. By promising to give you a certain price for your wheat a few months or a few years even down the line, they're taking on a risk. The price of wheat may go down. The price mm -hmm, of wheat mm -hmm. may go up. The demand for wheat may go down. The demand for wheat may go up. So they're playing a useful role in that yep. situation. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And they would also get a discount for that called the risk premium. Yeah. Right? So... So they, they they perform this role and they get a discount and that's kind of where they would where they would make 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 their money. But since then, the world almost, has moved on. Almost immediately, it's disaster, right? So this kind of idea of being a risk uh, mitigation system turns into a gambling system, mm -hmm. right? Because gambling and risk is essentially the same thing, right? So people don't often. It can be conceptually hard to think about this, but imagine like you get fire insurance out on your house. It's essentially a bet about whether your house is going to burn down, right? You're kind of gambling on this and you and the insurance company take a, a, opposing sides of this bet, just as in these contracts, you have opposing sides as well, right? Um, and, uh, you know, because before this system, you know, imagine um, trying to speculate on the, on, the, on the price of wheat, right? You would have to like get a farm with a big storage thing. You'd have to get it all in there. You have to make sure nobody nicked it. Nobody burnt it down, that it was kept. The rats didn't yeah. need it. The yeah. rats didn't need it. It's a complete pain in the arse, right? So this is this would this would be a problem, right? This is true for anything. Whereas what's so the magic of derivatives is saying, well, actually, we can bet on the prices of these things without having to go through the rigmarole of actually storing these things and so forth. It becomes a number on a piece of paper. It becomes, exactly. So we sort of... That's this is the thing about risk and gambling is that this is that there's such a great promise here for peace and order. I have to say it does actually eventually work. They actually do figure it out. So the the uh, throughout the sort of later parts of the 19th century and the early 20th century, you have all kinds of speculative manias that happen. I mean, it's not every year, but there'll be somebody will kind of come in and try and corner the market for pork bellies or wheat or whatever it may be, butter, and they'll kind of come in. They'll try and buy up the supply and send the price up and. Eventually, this gets so out of control that uh, Roosevelt comes in and regulates it. And one of the most important regulations that comes in is they essentially limit the amount of speculation, right? So they say, okay, um, uh, speculators, you're important. We still want you around. You have this important function to keep the market kind of ticking over and take on risk. And we're going to limit you to about 20% of the market. So in the jargon, they call it open interest. And it's incredibly successful, right? You know, it has to, I want to stress that, right, from the Roosevelt era through to the end of the 20th century to, to, to 2000, commodity prices are actually pretty stable unless there's a global mega shock, right? So the obvious examples would be in the 70s, the OPEC embargoes or the Iranian 1979 revolution where you see these huge oil price spikes. But by 1980 three, four, oil prices sort of stabilize. Um, new non-OPEC producers come in. The US starts making more. In the UK, we have North Sea oil, right? So the, divert, the, the supply gets diversified. The power of OPEC comes down. And markets are actually pretty 
um, pretty good at performing this function, right? So if prices go up a little bit, that's a signal to the market. You need to start shoving some more supply in here and vice versa. If they kind of dip down, then it's like we should scale back production. And so from around 1984 to 2004, um, markets are, you know, ticking over, right? You, we have actual real global shocks in this period, collapse of the Soviet Union, the Gulf War, Bush's invasion of Iraq, the rise of the Asian tigers, right? There was a lot going on in the collapse of communism. There's a lot going on in terms of real world volatility. But, you know, to the market's credit, they actually respond in a kind of way we would want them to, in a kind of rational way, finding new supply, moving it around. The first Gulf War creates a very short super spike. And uh, Bush's war uh, in 2003 is actually barely registers in the oil price. It's actually incredible to think now with what's happening to oil prices. In 2003, there's some... the. Because the sort of the market anticipated that Bush would keep all the oil flowing, they didn't. The market, the prices didn't didn't spike at all. And actually, Osama bin Laden gives a really angry interview to CNN and goes, "It's an absolute disaster. Oil should be a hundred dollars a barrel." It was one of his like big complaints about the the U.S. He believed that the U.S. was kind of bribing Saudi to keep the oil price low and starving Muslims of their deserved oil riches. And so he was he was really angry about this. Um, but then what we see around 2005, six, is this new era of kind of commodity price um, volatility. Um, Why does that happen? It's a controversial question and you will get a lot of different answers from different people. But from what I ended up speaking to a lot of traders on background, as well as um, some Nobel Prize winning economists, it seemed to me that the, the driver was simply this, this regulatory change in 2000, right? This to me seemed like the most plausible reason, as I said. It wasn't like the period before was super, well, it didn't have real world volatility, it did, the markets operated correctly. But in 2000, there was a bill uh, called the Commodity Futures Modernization Act. And what it was really about was a whole new set of derivatives, right? So you and your uh, viewers may have heard of uh, credit default swaps, those lovely things that are the main character in the big short, which were sort of derivatives that allowed you to bet on housing, essentially, right? And that was really what was being created in the 1990s, right? There were these, all this housing, collateralization, assets. They were essentially turning lots of different things in the real world of which housing became the most important. Um, so you were no longer, and, and in some ways, the real thing was that you were no longer betting even on something to which had a physical connection. You were quite often betting on a bet that someone else had made as well, weren't you, with some of these derivatives? That's absolutely true. And a, a part of what a, a part of what happened, I think, the way to think about it is in terms of scale, right? So there's always a kind of fictional nature to these contracts, always, ever since the beginning. That's not necessarily what's dangerous about them. The... I think what, what I found was that the danger and the volatility comes from two sources. So one source is just simply the scale. So in that Roosevelt era um, of kind of peace and stability that I like to see it as, the speculators were limited to 20%. So you've got a function in the market, it's important, but we're going to let the physical traders, people who actually, you know, grow wheat, buy wheat, turn it into bread, etc. They're really going to dominate the market and they're going to dominate price because they should know, right? They're the ones who are actually buying and selling it to, to, to consumers. Post-2000, as I said, what they were really trying to focus on was essentially protect these new housing derivatives and others from any kind of regulation. And commodities were almost like an afterthought, right? So commodities kind of get tacked in on this of like, okay, well, since we're doing all derivatives, you might as well just bring in 
oil and metals to go to go with it. And then the speculators in, in those markets can kind of grow to 18, 90%. And so the original sort of Milton Friedman idea of, 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 of why markets are gray or Hayek, right? These are your neoliberal uh, sort of economist philosophers is what they'll say is they'll say, well, the reason why markets are great is because they're decentralized and you've got ordinary people on the ground, whether you're a farmer or whether you're a hairdresser or whatever it may be, whatever your occupation is, you know your business better than anybody else and you're dealing with supply and demand on a direct way and that's why prices are great, right? Because you don't have some central committee sitting in Moscow or Washington DC or London telling everyone how the economy should work, right? There's no commissars in the market. But ironically, what this new financialized market was actually was resembles that a lot more, right? Because suddenly you've got people who are dominating the market, 80, 90%, who don't farm, right? Don't know what a bag of sugar might even look like, may have never even seen one, right? Don't even know what the difference between different kinds of crude oil may be. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. It doesn't really even matter. But these people are kind of dominating, and these are people who are living in Singapore, Hong Kong, London, New York. And suddenly it's their ideas and their expectations that end up driving it. And the thing about this is that when you've got these small groups of uh, 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 people who all talk to one another, they're very uh, vulnerable to narratives, stories, right? And you'll see this in the financial press all the time, right? You'll see this in Bloomberg, the Financial Times. You'll see, you know, there'll be a new story about... um, just to take recent examples, they'll be like, right, all of Russian oil's embargoed, and then you'll see the oil price literally jump $30 a barrel, right? Which is like completely crazy. I had speculators talk to me about an event in 2014 when ISIS moved into Mosul. It was headline news, the oil jumped $5 a barrel. That was seen as unprecedented volatility, and that was, what, seven, eight years ago. Now we're jumping $30 a barrel. And it's it's not just human beings, it's also algorithms, it's traders, it's, 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 it's algorithms reading the news that are reading those headlines before the human beings even seen them. And then the next day, you might have a headline that goes, no, actually, it's fine, India's going to buy Russia's oil, or China's going to buy it. And then the price kind of collapses again. And so what you have is in the in, in economics jargon, you cause positive feedback, right? So what you end up having is whether it's AI, whether it's human beings, whether it's trend followers, whether it's index investors, what I whoever I spoke to, what it ended up being was that you, you have these overreactions. So when there's a story of scarcity in the future, this sends the price higher than it might should be and, and, like, and like vice versa. And so that's really what we're kind of seeing in the last, in the last uh, couple of weeks. The well, other thing that's, that's, that's dangerous about these derivatives is you have this kind of volatility side where things can swing up and down. The other side is you often might hear this idea of explosions, right? So Warren Buffett said derivatives, weapons of mass destruction. That's something slightly different where he's talking about um, derivative contracts that are hundreds of pages of long, right? So when you're selling wheat and oil, on the whole, not always, but on the whole, you're dealing with a standardized contract, right? Everyone knows what it is, right? Everyone in the market, whether you've got an oil tanker or you're an oil man or you're a a hedge fund trader, we know what this means. You're going to get so many barrels of oil on this date for this price. Those kinds of, the other derivatives, these sort of new ones that um, were coming up in the 1990s were hundreds of pages of long, hundreds of pages of long. No one understood them. Nobody understood how they really even operated. And what often would, would happen is that sort of buried in them somewhere, there were these clauses that would detonate, right? So is this, you sort of see this in the big short, right? I think it's Chris Bale's character, I've forgotten whose thing it says. I've just discovered that 
if these, you know, it's a derivative, it's an asset, if it's 8% default, the whole thing blows up. It was, and he was autistic, right? Because he actually read it and all the other characters are going, you actually read this stuff, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So those are the, I'll let you go back to you. So, so, so those are the two ways in which these are sort of destructive. And, and my book really kind of fo- uh, focuses on the former, which is the market overreacting to news, creating, creating completely unnecessary volatility. It, to me, it just highlights, and, I, and I'm going to look at, because I'm not an economist, whilst I've been mm-hmm. following everything you're saying, I'm, my question is very much about the human element of this and societal. You have these tiny fraction of people, percentage of people, this tiny part of society, which dictates to everybody else what kind of society they're going to be in, prices. Isn't that just phenomenally dangerous? Well... I think it has been very dangerous, yes. I mean, again, it's 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 interesting when I went back and I read, you know, the original Hayek and the original Mil- Milton Friedman, their promise of markets, and this is, of course, during the Cold War, right? So their promise of like a global capitalist m- 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 marketplace was decentralization. That was the whole idea. It was, you know, Friedman... Um, uh, hated central bankers. He wanted to replace the Federal Reserve with a computer. He wanted to abolish the IMF. I mean, he really genuinely didn't like technocrats and being told what to do. But then I think it's one of the great ironies is that is that what neoliberalism turned into, I think, by the end of the 1990s was this something quite different to what they had in mind, right? Which was, which was to be dominated by finance. And by finance, I mean banks, hedge funds, other others where it could be university endowments, it could be... Um, pension funds, asset managers. And these people kind of begin sort of dominating markets in ways that wasn't really anticipated. Friedman writes a really interesting article, I think it's in 1962, where he is opposed to central bank independence, right? And the reason why he's opposed to it is he goes, well, who's going to staff the central banks? It's going to be other bankers. And they're just going to govern in the interest of bankers. And Friedman's whole MO was, I don't want any interest group running the market. Again, he wants to decentralize. Um, he isn't actually entirely consistent later in his in his life. He kind of comes around to Greenspan, but that's also why he spends a lot of time trying to make sure that that, he, that the Federal Reserve is run by a computer, because he anticipates that when central banks or other institutions sort of get staffed by people, they're going to pick people from finance, and those people are going to want to help to expand the financial markets. Um, and essentially, what you've ended up with today is, you know, uh, BlackRock, huge asset manager. I think has uh, $20 trillion underneath asset management, right? Just for reference, I think US GDP is 24, 25 trillion. So you've got one fund in control of the amount of money, which is nearly the size of the US economy, right? This is, we are almost in, like we're back to the Kremlin, right? We're back to a commissar in charge of hospitals, schools, veterinary clinics, restaurants. I mean, you name it, these asset managers own it. And so I think it's one of the great ironies is that of of the kind of neoliberal project is they've kind of created, recreated the very beast they were trying to slay. Hey, Constantine, do you like trigonometry? Of course, what's not to love? Incredible interviews, hilarious raw shows, Plus, we're going to start doing weekly satirical comedy like the ones that we used to put out. I'm Constantin Kisson, and you may remember me from my stint hosting a kids' TV show on Al Jazeera. And I'm Francis Foster, a man who looks like a cross between Louis Theroux and a beaver. We are going to start doing them. 
but we need your help. As the show grows, Francis and I are finding it increasingly difficult to stay on top of everything we've got to do. With two interviews and three Raw shows every single week, plus loads of admin on top of that, we've got more work on than Justin Trudeau's makeup artist. Do you miss comedy that's actually funny? Comedy that pulls no punches and isn't all about how we must fight the structures of patriarchal oppression by toxic straight white men. If you want real comedy, you can make that happen. If we can get an extra 250 local supporters by March 15th, we'll be able to outsource a few of the day-to-day -day things that we do and free up more time to make incredible content for you. It'll be funny, biting, satirical, and not some worthy gimp telling you what to think. It's... <laughs> <laughs> it's $7 a month, which is £5 if you live in the civilised world. Join our Locals community using the link in the description and help us make comedy great again. And one of the things, sorry Francis, yeah. just to follow up on this point about how this, and I know people listening and watching might think this is sort of abstract economic stuff, but it really isn't, and I invite them to stick with us. So. We, we started out by talking about volatility and prices of mm -hmm. food and oil and gas and so on. And then we started talking about derivatives and how that is making prices less stable and making them more unstable. And am I, would I be right in thinking that Bill Clinton in particular was one of the people who removed many of the regulations that were keeping this under control? Absolutely, that's right. So Clinton's ultimately the guy who signs the Commodity Futures Modernization Act in 2000. That bill had been spearheaded by Greenspan. So Greenspan and Larry Summers, who was then the Treasury Secretary as well, who now Larry Summers kind of been resurrected now, it's back in the public public debate. These were the guys who really kind of spearheaded this. And there's this very famous reported line in I go into this in, in, in the book, but essentially what happened was there was a, a, a famous kind of battle of the bureaucrats, right? There was Brooks Lee Bourne, who was head of the CFTC that regulates essentially commodities, which is where derivatives in the US regulatory system fall under. And there have been a few of these kind of detonations. <clears throat> so Procter & Gamble in the 1990s had lost, I think, maybe tens of millions, hundreds of millions in derivative bets. They just didn't understand. They thought they were buying insurance for something and it kind of blew up in ways, created losses they didn't realize. The same was true for Orange County. And so Brooks Lee Bourne, who's the regulator of, of derivatives through the commodity markets, which is where they all derive um, in the US system, says, hang on a minute, maybe we should like look into this whole trillions of dollars in bets on stuff. Like maybe there's something we should look at. And um, the Washington Post reported an apparent phone call that Larry Summers, who was then the undersecretary of the Treasury, made to Brooks Lee Bourne. And he said, I've got 13 bankers in my office. And if they say you go along with releasing a report that asks this question, we're going to have a US financial crisis bigger than World War II. Brooks Lee Bourne goes ahead and releases this. It wasn't a report, really. It was like a white paper inviting people to comment on regulations. And there was no global financial crisis, right? And instead, what happened was there was a whole lot of really spearheaded by Greenspan, a lot of kind of internal Washington uh, uh, wrangling. They have a big committee hearing in which they kind of humiliate her. All these guys kind of gang, 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 gang up on her. She ends up being pushed out. And then 
Larry Summers and Greenspan, and I think two others, end up writing this report that ends up becoming the, the thing that deregulates it. And of course, it's the biggest irony that, you know, this ends up causing a genuinely the biggest financial crisis right. since World mm. War II, right? It was actually not doing what, what Brooks D. Bourne said that, 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 that led to the whole housing market and US economy exploding. And it happens very quickly. Once they take yeah, the brakes yeah. off the economy, it happens within literally a few years. Yeah, absolutely. And I, because it, it, it had already been growing, right? So in the 1990s, it already been growing, but it was in this sort of regulatory gray area. And of course, that's not great, right? You don't want to build a trillion dollar business in a gray area. And so 2000, that act, again, it was very much focused on these new derivatives like housing, but also betting on things like currencies, government debt, and things like that. And commodities were kind of almost like an afterthought to that process, but of course, hugely important as well. Now, how much of a part did dare I say, corruption play. Because you've got these politicians, they know that the Glass-Spiegel Act is there to protect people. It's there to protect society. We brought it in, now correct me if I'm wrong, after the last Great Depression in the Mm -hmm. 1930s. And they're doing this at the behest of banks, asset managers. Is there something nefarious going on there? Or did they genuinely think that this would be a good move? Um, I think there's a lot of... um motivated reasoning go, go, going on, for sure. Um, you know, in that case in particular, a lot of this was also being driven by Bob Rudin, right? Mm. So he was like one of the big guys in Clinton's economic team. He was also like a mentor to um, uh, Lawrence Summers and others. And, you know, they when they repealed Glass-Steagall, they said this is like the Citibank Merger Act, I think. I could be wrong on the details here. I haven't looked at this for a while, but... You know, lo and behold, who goes and gets a $10 million job after this? You know, Bob Rudin, Mm. right? So I think there was definitely always the problem of rotating doors. There's absolutely no doubt between that when you're looking at who's staffing the regulatory agencies, who's in the banks. And again, this is what Milton Friedman anticipated in 1962. This is like the great irony, right? He absolutely says, right, once you start having these big institutions that have really got their fingers in the markets, if you staff them with bankers, you know, they're going to start governing in the interests of bankers. Mm. Um, And that was even a comment made by um, uh, an appointee, I've got, his name has split my mind right now, but there was an appointee that um, Bill Clinton made, like under Greenspan at the Federal Reserve. And he's a lifelong academic, he had no interest in being a banker, um, didn't, wasn't a banker before, wasn't a banker after. But he also kind of said, it's a, it's, it's quite human, right? Like, even if you even like like him, he's like, he didn't want that career. He didn't want that payday. But he said, it's like, you're being marked by the markets as a, as, as a central banker. You put out in a statement, you maybe you pull a policy lever, maybe it's interest rates, anything else, and you get instant response from the market, right? And it's like, you, it can be difficult to not pay attention to that, right? You're constantly being graded and it's just human nature to want good marks, right? You want the stock market to like you. You want to say something at the Federal Reserve and see the stock market sort of go up. But it also encourages a sense of short-termism, to short-termism, doesn't it? Because like you said, you want the stock market to go up, but you don't think about the stock market two or three years or five or 10 years down the line. You're thinking about the stock market now. It creates an immediacy in the way you think. It absolutely does. And Greenspan was constantly sort of criticized because the, the ultimate expression of this, of this logic was, was, or was talked about during Greenspan. And, and on Wall Street, they called it the Greenspan put option, which essentially meant that whenever the stock market went down, Greenspan would cut interest rates and throw fuel on the fire. And he sort of 
criticized for fueling the tech bubble of the 1990s and then the housing bubble, housing bubble of the 2000s. What I wanted to do in my book, though, was to sort of take a, to, to look outside the United States. Because of course, what's happening in the United States impacts the globe, right? The stock market's important, but to be honest, most holders of US stocks are either US citizens or other US entities. Whereas the Chicago Mercantile Exchange has an absolute global impact, right? So the price that people are paying for food and fuel globally is an absolutely outweighted uh, uh, impact by, by, by that. And also the Federal Reserve, right? So these sort of things all kind of, because um, commodities are denominated in dollars, right? A lot of petrodollars get recycled in the US financial system. And so what actually happens is you have the US uh, decisions that are made internally to the US for US reasons have these kind of global ripple, ripple effects. And that's kind of what the book wants to explore. It's saying, yes, okay, there was the uh, housing bubble, there was an explosion of housing derivatives, there was the global financial crisis. And that's a story that's now well well known. We have various Hollywood movies, there's lots of books. But there was other detonations as well in the price of food and oil that didn't stop in 2008. They kept going throughout the decades and they're happening again right now. And these were kind of global events. And as you said at the beginning, we're not talking about them because it wasn't considered a crisis in Europe or the US at the time. And what I wanted to do the book, and I go on this kind of gonzo adventure to lots of kind of war zones I really should have been in or Caracas, <laughs> was to kind of really highlight that, like that story with the video game. It was like, what does it mean to live in one of these places? In Venezuela, that happened because the oil prices collapsed in 2014. That was the first reason. And then secondly, of course, um, enormous sanctions put on the regime in 2017 by uh, Trump. Um, was Venezuela um, mismanaged before? Sure it was, but was it you know, mismanaged so much worse than these oil economies. I mean, I don't think so. All right. So look, the, the story, the narrative of this conversation is essentially this. Commodity prices, that is food, oil, gas, etc., cause instability, volatility of those prices, mm-hmm, fluctuations, mm-hmm. random changes that are significant, etc., cause instability of one form or another. If dictators who sell oil suddenly can get a better price for the oil, they're much more likely to to execute their expansionist plans. Mm -hmm. And likewise, if food prices spike, then people in poorer countries uh, are likely to protest, rebel, overthrow the government, etc., which causes instability. A second piece is that that instability and that volatility, in particularly in recent years, is caused by the fact that we've taken some some ir- irresponsible deregulation has happened mm-hmm. in the last 20, 20 years particularly, which has facilitated that. And so we've deregulated that is causing instability, it's causing war. What the hell do we do about it? This is a really great question and it's incredibly urgent, right? Because commodity prices are surging again. We could be looking at another global food crisis with the instability that comes with it. I also, you know, we've been talking about things have been happening 10 years ago. It's important to remember, I think, you know, in Kazakhstan in January, the government was deposed over food price, sorry, fuel prices doubling, right? This isn't even like, this is literally like a month and a half old, right? This is something which happened, which happened this year. So you've got, of course, the human suffering element. You've got the political stability element, as you mentioned. You've then got this war element, which, and, and of course, these things, of course, begin to cascade with each other. They tend to feed into each other. The most immediate thing um, in the current crisis would be, you know, uh, make sure we get food to people because there's two separate issues here which get confused. So one is global prices, right? And as we mentioned, that there's a, a 
a way in which prices and reality can sort of diverge from each other. I interviewed Robert Schiller. He's the great economist of bubbles. And he was essentially explaining to me is how all price movements are the result of stories, right? Friedman and other, you know, pro-market people would say, well, they're the good stories, they're the rational stories, because if you've got a crappy story, you know, you'll lose out, right? If you go and bet on a two-legged horse, right? Bad for you, you're gonna, you're gonna be kicked out of that market. You're not gonna last very long. So Schiller's argument is that that's not quite the case in, in, in reality, that kind of bad stories have a way of persisting. And if you're in on the bad story first, you can still kind of, you can still kind of make money out of it. Two examples of that would be um, 2008, 2010. So 2008, there's a global food crisis. Um, that year and the year previously had seen more food ever produced in history. 2010, there were wildfires across Russia. There was, again, in the financial press, you can go and look this stuff up, right? In the archives, there was always kind of hysteria of global shortages of wheat. But the US that year had a bumper crop. Again, more food was produced in 2010 than any year in history. But prices doubled nevertheless, right? Because it was those stories that got factored into prices. And sure, the price does come down when the new information comes out. The market self-corrects. But as Keynes said, in the long run, we're, we're all dead, right? Mm -hmm. So the short term really matters in a lot of these places, especially for people who are spending most of their income on food or calling it like a living on the edge of chaos, right? You just need a little nudge maybe to kind of, to kind of push you over. And I think that's really important because... What we're seeing right now, and each of these markets is slightly different, oil, gas, and food. So I don't want to lump them all together necessarily, but maybe for expediency, I will. Um, is that it's not quite clear that especially for oil and wheat, we, we are seeing shortages yet, right? So Russian oil is still being pumped, it's still being sold. Russian natural gas is still flowing into, into Europe. In fact, it's now higher than it was before the war. Um, the fears over Ukrainian wheat and actually some Russian wheat not getting out as exports to particularly the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa they desperately need. Um, that chink in the supply chain hasn't actually broken yet. It will do. But of course, it's not coming out on like a daily basis, right? It's not quite how it works. Not only that, the Chinese and the US have gargantuan reserves, right? So it's not like that's the only wheat we have is stuck in Ukraine if we don't get that. And so I think what we need to do is sort of separate these two issues out. One is we need to make sure that there's price stability. <clears throat> and there's some really interesting work being done now on a kind of, you say price controls and people's like heads explode, but like there are ways to kind of regulate prices. I mean, of course, electricity prices and things like that are regulated in Britain and other countries anyway, right? We, we can have some regulation of prices to kind of restore sanity. This is, by the way, really normal for wartime, right? World War II and so forth. Like, you can't have markets. Markets can't synthesize this information, right? Like, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. Oh, no, there's no more food. We're all going to lose the next day. Roosevelt says something. There's, the information environment is too uncertain, right, for prices to really do their job of, like, helping us organize the economy. So I definitely think we need to make sure that the volatility is reduced, whether that's uh, deeper regulations on on restoring the Roosevelt era things, or maybe some new inventions I'm sort of reading about. But that is all almost secondary to this need for the physical markets, right? The markets aren't functioning correctly. They don't during wartime. That's completely normal. And we need to remember that the state needs to ship, the, 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 the state needs to to sorry, the state needs to step in, right? Biden, the US, they need to get those reserves from wheat, they need to put them on boats, they need to send them to places like Libya, Syria, 
uh, Yemen, even Bangladesh. These are all countries that are normally dependent on Ukrainian wheat, and we just need to get it to them. The US, by, by, by the way, has had a long history of doing this. So during the Cold War, um, it was a big part of their Cold War strategy was to basically give either cheap or massively subsidized uh, bread to uh, Middle Eastern countries to kind of stop them from siding with the Soviet Union. And during the oil crisis of the 70s, you know, Kissinger would call them up, the Egyptians and the Syrians, and be like, we're going to cut off all your food unless you do what we want. And they told them to go to hell, but that's another story. So we've when we're talking about a Marshall Plan, we need this right now with food, right? We really, really, really can't wait. We need to start talking about physical markets, physical bushels of wheat. We need to get them on physical boats and, and, and we need to send them there. We can't just leave it to the market to do it because, you know, there's, there's quite simply, there's too much uncertainty, right? Like, why would you want to necessarily, if you're a private investor or a private merchant, want to get involved in this because the war could end tomorrow, the war could end in three years. And, and we can't expect the private sector to, 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 to do this. And so Europe and the US really needs to step in and make sure we don't have another global food crisis. This okay, year. but that's the short term. What about the structural issue, which is the the, the, the deregulation that we've had is going to keep causing price instability? What do we need to do to fix that? Sure. So we need to go back to some version of the of the Roosevelt era of Roosevelt era rules for sure. We need to basically anchor these markets, assuming there's peace time, right? Let's just assume there's a ceasefire tomorrow. Mm. We're back to the wonderful days of 2021 that was so like amazing. Um, let's go back to that beautiful era of last year where we were all happy and rainbow smiles and so forth. Um, rainbow smiles behind Mars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, behind Mars, exactly. So, very good at that. I mean, that's just, it's just a complete no-brainer, right? We need to basically anchor markets in, the, in like the real world. Look, markets are amazing things. I'm not going to deny this, right? Like, I'm not an anti-market person. When markets operate, they're... Um, incredible engines of, 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 of stability and trade. And, you know, these, these are great things. The state cannot control markets this, this large for the most part. Mm. Um, but the, the, the thing that I also learned from another Nobel Prize winning economist, uh, Joseph Stiglitz, who I interviewed, is that markets need very specific conditions to operate correctly, mm. right? So there's, a, there's a, a kind of a sense you might read when you read the more sort of pro-market ideologues that, you know, markets are kind of natural inventions that kind of you put mankind on desert island and you kind of came back in a year, you'd find a kind of beautiful free market. And it would only be if some kind of evil government state got established that it would all sort of go wrong, interference and so forth. I actually have seen those kinds of anarchic markets in Venezuela and Iraq, and they are just, it's feudalism, right? It's just the guy with guns is the person who who actually kind of controls this. And you can kind of see a kind of uh, markets operating outside the state and they're, and they're really not pretty, pretty things. Um, so what you need is you need a kind of a state architecture to make sure that markets are grounded in reality. I suppose that's the message of my book, right? It's saying like, Sure, we can have prices, prices can coordinate markets, we can have this decentralized world, but they really should be dominated by people who are uh, involved in the physical production of this. Just in the same way with the hospital, right? We, you know, you go to the hospital and you would want the people who are making the decisions about your care to be doctors, nurses, other people with professional degrees. You don't necessarily want it to be a hedge fund in Singapore, right, who's bought the hospital and is now <laughs> deciding. But that is actually the reality of a lot of private hospitals and uh, uh, nursing homes in, 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 in the UK, right? We had this huge boom and bust of restaurants when 
restaurants like Patisserie Valerie or Byron Burger or whatever got bought up by private equity, massive expansions. Again, it wasn't rooted in the real world, right? This was money flowing in, looking for yield. It wasn't people making rational decisions about the UK health, sorry, UK restaurant market. These weren't like chefs going, oh, I know what we need. We know they need another Byron Burger in this in this suburb of London. It was no, it was a, a template copied and pasted by these different funds. And it destroyed much of the UK restaurant industry, right? Because you had massive overexpansion, rents went up, the business model collapses, and now thousands of people are unemployed. And I suppose that the message the sort of the, the positive message of my book is is that you know we don't need to go back that far, right? It's not I'm not giving you a history about the prehistory of civilization and it was all wonderful back in the Stone Ages and we all lived in lives of abundance. Why not go back to the go-go 80s? Was that that mm-hmm. terrible for finance? You know, was was that that terrible to go back to 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 that era? And I think that's that's that would be a huge step in the right direction. Is just to go back to the 90s and the 1980s, which again wasn't even that that long ago. Rupert, isn't the problem as well that we've got these institutions that are too big to fail? And you, you've been talking about institutions like BlackRock, mm-hmm. mentioning these huge sums. And and I started to get anxious. I go, well, if if that goes, you know, like like Lehman Brothers, what what effect is that going to have on society? It's a really great question because I think the Lehman Brothers debacle was actually a turning point rather than something that we should fear. So Lehman Brothers, I think, in kind of sort of central banking law is the biggest mistake they ever made in living memory, right, was was letting Lehman Brothers fail. Because the way in which these markets work, as I mentioned, they're all about narratives. Part of narrative is confidence, right? And to keep everything kind of going, everyone's got to believe there's something happening tomorrow, right? That's kind of how it has to work. And so when Lehman Brothers goes down, the confidence collapsed, and then the entire financial system um, is threatened, not just because you're going to get, you're going to get all kinds of different kind of domino effects, right? So imagine building the most complicated eight-dimensional Jenga thing that you could imagine, right? Lehman Brothers was pulling out one of those things and the whole thing goes down. And I think what the central banks learned was not to ever let that happen again. 2020 March, um, pandemic is really hitting, right? You're seeing the first kind of shutdowns. Again, radical uncertainty. Markets don't know how to respond. You get what they call this dash for cash globally. How is dollars stored? They're stored in US treasuries because you get a yield from it, right? So it's as good as money. That's why people love holding US treasuries. It's as good as cash, but you get money every year. Um, And so there was this huge sell-off in the US treasury market. Now, unbeknownst to most people, there were all sorts of hedge funds playing all kinds of bets, and they were essentially arbitraging uh, different kinds of prices between treasuries, right? So there was futures, treasuries, prices, and spot. don't need to understand the mechanics of this, but basically there was a whole bunch of uh, trading that was happening, highly le- leveraged around these US treasuries. And because there was this sort of shock event of a, a sell-off of US treasuries, which under normal circumstances never happened, suddenly this whole kind of system goes haywire, right? So these hedge funds can't pay the collateral calls, the banks start calling in the loans. And again, you get like, one of these Jenga things where you pull the piece out. And uh, Jerome Powell, the uh, chair of the Federal Reserve, just basically prints a trillion dollars, right? So he basically, they press a button on the computer, the Federal Reserve, trillion dollars of US Treasuries appears, and suddenly the whole system kind of keeps keeps going. Um, there was no Lehman Brothers moment. And I think when you look at what the central banks think about and talk about, they're trying always to identify where that may come from. 
Um, so one that they're very much interested in at the moment is climate change, right? So another interesting thing when you think about the real world and the financial world and the relationship to it, when we talk about like a housing crisis or the housing bubble in America, it's not that the houses that disappeared, right? Right. It was like a little physical thing that happened that they built houses and they just suddenly like set on fire or something and then they had no more houses to sell. It was really internal to the market of finance and how these things have been turned into assets and how that had been baked into the financial system. What we could see though, so imagine how terrible it was without any houses being destroyed. Now imagine rising sea levels, right? And suddenly you've got big portions of Miami underwater. All those prices go to zero. What's going to happen to the banks that lent the money for the mortgages for this? Well, all those banks are going to fail. Well, what's going to... And then immediately you have a ripple effect. And this is just... Let's just take just Miami, right? You have a ripple effect that could destroy the entire US financial system. And this is... They're kind of gaming it out like war games, you know? There's a lot of kind of what-ifs. Like, well, what if sea levels rose by this amount? What if there was a storm that destroyed US crops. What happened to the banks that lend the money for those crops, right? So everything kind of, all arrows point back to finance because they're the ones lending everybody the money. And essentially what they've ended up doing is a bit like what Jerome Powell is doing, is essentially printing money and shoring it up because they don't want to have a rerun of the financial crisis. The risk from that is, of course, the classic risk that just why they did leave Lehman Brothers fail is that it's this moral, it's this moral hazard thing, right? Mm-hmm. If you're BlackRock and you're just going, okay, we're too big to fail, we do whatever we want. We know that if we have, you know, huge investments in X or Y, you know, we're going to get bailed out or there's going to be some kind of insurance. And they're actually asking for this, by the way, right? So there's a, a big piece of finance that wants central banks to essentially guarantee their green investments. So it's a, it's a bet of, you know, Heads I win, tails I win, right? That's kind of what they want to sort of make the investment. Yeah, it seems like a good idea. Take the risk kind of gambling. I'm sure that will <laughs> that will work very well. Listen, I, I wish we had more time, uh, but it, it's been a very interesting conversation and uh, probably the beginning of one rather than the end of one, to be honest, because this is uh, this is going to get more and more important, I feel, as things mm-hmm. go on. Uh, so thanks for coming on. A Price Wars, How Chaotic Markets Create a Chaotic World is a really fascinating read. I recommend people check it out. Uh, thanks for coming on. We're going to ask you a couple of questions from our locals only supporters that only they get to see. Okay. But before we do that, we, as always, have one more question for you. Which is, what's the one thing we're not talking about, but we really should be? Well, I'm going to piggyback on what I've already said um, at the beginning and say we're not looking enough at mazes. So I encourage everybody to watch loads of horror movies because they're great templates for thinking about the world, right? You load up. Twitter or whatever, it feels like a kind of horror feed at least, like doom scrolling, what it might be. But I and think you do it, want a lot of people to be killed with a chainsaw <laughs> on there as well. Well, I'm not going to say what I want to see, but maybe that's... Because um, that would be illegal. Nail guns for me. I love when you reach for the nail gun. That's always a good scene. Um, is that we've adopted the tropes of a horror movie, right? So that's, it's Putin is the monster. What's he really thinking? Has he gone mad for two years in the pandemic reading crazy Russian historians? Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. I don't know, right? Right. So we, we like to kind of, monsters are, are fun. They're grotesque. They've got great personalities. We can kind of read the tea leaves into them. Um, but the key to every great monster movie is the maze, right? Because... Um, imagine Alien just takes place in a big spaceship that's just like a, a basketball court, right? It's not going to last very long, is it, right? <laughs> you know, she's just, Ripley's going to be there and the aliens is going to come and just kill her, right? No, you've got to create a maze. You've got to create 
barriers and structures so that you've got a chase and it's exciting. And you could think about um, The Shining, right? You've got Jack Nicholson, right? Not just running around the hotel corridors, but he literally goes into a labyrinth, right? That's the final scene that Kubrick has, running around a literal maze, which is a, a callback to the Minotaur in the maze, right? In Greek, Greek mythology. Mm. Or zombie movies, Dawn of the Dead, all takes place in a mall. You've got to kind of run around the mall. And I think that's what gets obscured in the news, is we don't look enough at the kind of structures. It's like what is constraining these monsters and also what's enabling them. And I think ultimately that's, the, that's what's going to help us uh, uh, keep them engaged. It's not saying what is it that Putin wants or what is it that Putin will accept on trying to get inside his head, because to be honest, I think it's a fool's errand. I mean, who actually knows this apart from himself? But we know that his power comes from structure, right? He, we, we, we know what that structure is. It's based largely in the, in the commodity markets. And that's, and that's really what, what we can do. And I think we could take that. That's just one current example. But you could apply that across the board to sort of whenever you're seeing a kind of horror in the news, which part of the world it's coming from, is to always think about what is the maze here? What is the, what is the architecture of opportunity and constraint? How has this been allowed to happen? Why is it happening now? And why hasn't it happened in the past? And I think it's from then which we then begin to understand like why these monsters have emerged. Perfect. Great. Rupert Russell, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, if people want to find your book or they want to find you online, where is the best place to do that? Well, you can just, wherever you are, just look for Price Wars, How Chaotic Markets are Creating Chaotic Worlds. And I'm on Twitter as well on Rupert underscore Russell. Fantastic stuff. Fantastic. We, thank you guys for watching and listening. We'll see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or Raw Show, all of which go out at 7 p.m. UK time. And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. Who is behind the commodity traders? Are their actions directed solely by the profit motive or are there, for example, government actors influencing their choice of which commodity markets to destabilize? Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.